welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. And this week, I am just, I'm like so excited. <laughs> I was so excited to talk to these guys. Um, I'm talking to John and Andy Anderson, two cousins from Iowa who became the first Iowans to summit Everest from the north side. And honestly, since since I was probably like 10 years old, I've been fascinated, terrified, inspired by stories from Everest. Um, I remember being 10 in our elementary school library and picking up a copy of Into Thin Air. Why this was in the elementary school library, I have no freaking idea, but <laughs> but I picked it up. I started reading it and trying to understand it as best I could. Um, you know, coming from a guy who was fresh off of reading Goosebumps to trying to read like an adult book at that point. Um, and it just captured my imagination. Uh, being in that remote of a place, in that intense of a place, like I said, it's all the emotions at once. It's terrifying, scary, inspiring. You just imagine being on the top and how just indescribable that feeling must be. And so these two guys, Andy and John, are going to be the first people who I've ever talked to at all um, who have actually been on top of the world. And the other giant benefit is that they're from Iowa, which I claim is one of the greatest states, actually one of the greatest places on earth. <laughs> so, so yeah, I hope you guys enjoy their story. Um, I hope it inspires you to just realize that no goal is out of reach. Um, whatever goal you're chasing right now, currently in your life, you can get there just by taking the steps A through Z, doing everything correctly, being consistent, doing it day after day after day. Make sure you're staying conscious about what you can do to pursue that goal. Because like I said, these two guys live in Iowa and they were able to, which is flat a flat state. If you don't know about Iowa, do some research because it's an amazing state, but it's flat. So they, they were able to trained in a flat state to climb the biggest mountain in the world. And you can check out more of their mission uh, by checking on Facebook. They're called Iowans for Everest. And, you know, as expected, when I talk to people from Iowa, they're just the nicest dudes in the world. So I'm really excited for you to listen to their story and listen to this episode. Uh, for all the rest of our episodes, um, you can find us on Like a Bigfoot on whatever you listen to podcasts on or go to our website, likeabigfoot.com or even, uh, you know, join our Facebook group. I'll post some videos, some pictures, some articles uh, about John and Andy on the website this week. So, so yeah, definitely check that out and uh, let's get into it. This is Like a Bigfoot number 44 with Iowans for Everest, Andy and John Anderson.
All right, so uh, first off, I just want to give you guys a huge congratulations. Um, I know you, you, you two will be the first people I've ever talked to that have actually been up Everest. Uh, though I've been kind of like a sideline Everest nerd for like, I don't know, since like t I was 10 years old. Um, and it's, it's even more awesome that you guys are from Iowa, uh, the best state in the union, obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, right. I, and I have so many questions just about like, how did you train for this in Iowa? But uh, we'll get there. So I, I guess like how many days are you guys removed from, from being up there? We summited on the 22nd. Okay. Um, so I suppose that puts us a week and a half out. Um, today's the second, so eight, nine, ten, eleven days out. Yeah, we were so eleven days ago. We were standing on the top. How surreal does that feel? So, for me, I'm like you. I've been an Everest nerd for a very long time. Um, so since I was very young. And um, so the standing on top for me was the culmination of all of this training and all this thinking about Everest and reading all the books and watching the movies and uh, talking to different people who had climbed Everest or been on Everest. So for me, it was pure elation to, to be up there um, and really, you know, nailing that, uh, that, final, that final nail into the deck sort of thing. So it was really good, yeah. That's insane. So, John, uh, I, I believe I've been trying to read up on you guys a bit. So, John, are you the one pursuing the Seven Summits, or is that uh, Andy? No, I'm not actually doing the Seven Summits. Oh, my bad. Andy's the one working on the Seven Summits. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've gotten three just out of my climbing experience, but I believe Andy's up to four. He's only got three left. Nice. So. Which ones you got, Andy? Uh, which ones to go or which ones have I climbed? Uh, just, yeah, which ones have you climbed and which ones do you have left? So Africa um, with John and, and my wife. Um, we did Kilimanjaro. Um, I've done uh, Elbrus in Russia, um, Denali with John again, and then Everest with John again. Oh, that's awesome. How much, how much of the experience is the travel you know how much is that the memorable parts versus the actual climbing so the travel is is uh even though it's on the other side of the world and it took seven days to get there it took a full week to get to base camp which was already a little bit crazy because the expedition is so long you're on the mountain for over 40 days that that actually ends up being a very small percentage of your total time uh for the trip so the travel was completely secondary in this case. Um, it, it took a long time. I think we had 11 days of travel total um, to get there and get back. Um, but again, compared to the to the 40 days that we were actually on the mountain, it, it paled in comparison. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. John, has this been uh, kind of a goal for you then too? Or, or was Andy just called you up and you're like, yeah, I'll tag along? <laughs> um, well... Yeah, actually, I was invited back to climb with Charlie Whitmack in uh, 2010, 2000. No, he did it in 2011. But I was uh, at a deployment at that point, uh, so I figured yeah, I was going to be doing Everest. So I didn't really put it on the list. And then, you know, last year we got invited on a, a actually a different team to go do the south side, both of us. 
And then we got talking. It's like, hey, why don't we do the north side? We couldn't talk team to switch to the north, so we just broke off and went and climbed the north side of Everest. <laughs> what's uh, so, what's kind of the difference between the two sides? Um, the big difference is where the the technical difficulties are at. On the south side, the technical difficulty is the uh, the Kumbu Icefall. I mean, that's the the big dangerous part of that climb. And that's down at 17,000 feet. Okay. Where on the north side, the technical difficulty is on summit day. You know, going up across the, the first, second, and third step, you know, at summit day. So you're up at, you know, what is it, 28,000 feet or so when you start hitting, you know, you're, you're actual doing climbing with your crampons. But the harder part is when you go through the ice falls, it's still fairly low with the, the rock steps. You know they're high, so you're in your big boots, you're in your your down suit, you have your oxygen mask on, you have the goggles on, so it makes it a lot more difficult to see your your feet when you're trying to climb up this ladder. So yeah, and that's kind of the the, the big glaring differences in the two sides. That the north side sees less traffic. I okay. mean, it's probably maybe 20% of the total people on the mountain uh, compared to the south side that is just just packed lots and lots of people on the south side well and that's what you that's what you read about all the time is the traffic jams on everest which is kind of like just a two crazy words put together it's like traffic jams and then everest and uh did you guys experience that at all on the north side the north side um uh, a little bit i mean the day we went was the second summit window for weather wise and so there's a lot of teams up on the mountain at that time but we never really experienced a traffic jam that lasted probably more than maybe 10, 15 minutes. Okay. I think at the second step, we got delayed a little bit, but that is nothing compared to some of the delays on the south side. And even then, you know, you meet a slower group and they let you pass. Or, you know, when you're going down, you run into another party and everyone just kind of works together to get through it really quick and efficiently. So I think, uh, yeah, the traffic jams really aren't really an issue there on the the north side compared to like the south side where you have just huge teams all clogging up the same line yeah because that's kind of the when i've watched documentaries about everest or you know read books that's kind of what is kind of terrifying to me is like you're almost not in control of your own safety at that point if people are going much slower than you you're kind of stuck on whether or not they're going to speed up which sounds terrifying yeah. Yeah. No, I I agree, and that's that's one of the the main benefits of the uh, of the north side. And I I actually attribute that to the Chinese government and the China Tibet Mountaineering Association. Um, I talked to the the guy in charge, the 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 person in charge of the, the entire association, and he said, you know, we think on the north side, uh, 400 people, including clients and Sherpas, is a pretty reasonable number. Um, and we, we sort of tried to cap it at that. So they actually turn away, they denied permits. They denied permits even this year uh, for climbers uh, to keep the numbers low. I think there were seven, or sorry, 372 or 373 clients in Sherpas this year. Um, whereas on the south side, they had, um, I've heard 1,200 people. Oh yeah, 1,200 people. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot more. And it's it's the same sort of route, right? Everybody's yeah. working their way up a fixed line, and you have three times as many people. 
it just it doesn't it doesn't work. So the Nepalese government was uh, not as selective in who they allowed to on the mountain. Yeah. Um, so you do have, I mean, and we saw a lot more deaths on the south side than the north side this year. So. Yeah. Um, maybe there's something to it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know you guys, well, I know a lot of people climb for a purpose, um, raise money, fundraise. Uh, what was your guys' purpose? I know I read about it a little bit uh, online, but can you guys share it on here? John, do you want to take that one or do you want me to? Uh, you can. You're, you're pretty eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we, we came up with the idea of uh, trying to help veterans, and especially those with uh, PTSD um, or who are at risk of PTSD. Um, and this really started um, from, from our personal experiences. Um, so John has done a couple of tours in Afghanistan. My father was also in Afghanistan, actually at the same time as John, um, back in the early 2000s. And, um, reintegration can be a pretty big issue, and we felt that these vets just weren't getting the help that they needed or help in the right direction. So a lot of times when vets come back, um, maybe with PTSD issues or being at risk, they just throw medicine at them. Um, so, but John and I really believe that a more holistic approach to um, helping vets is, is going to it has a lot more efficacy. Um, so we, we started taking, uh, working with uh, different veterans groups, uh, initially the University of Northern Iowa Veterans Association. Um, I actually had the president of the UNIVA you know, taking one of my classes, so we started to connect. And uh, um, yeah, started, started taking those guys out on trips, rock climbing trips, um, snowshoeing trips. Um, and then we started uh, working with other groups, Red, White, and Blue, um, to to uh, to go rock climbing in Des Moines, um, so yeah, we really believe that the, a holistic approach to reintegration and combating PTSD um, is is probably the best route. And John can elaborate more on why that is so efficacious um, as well. Why it has such a great effect. Yeah, I mean, John, yeah. I gotta imagine it's the whole giving people a purpose when they come back. So instead of just like the easy route would be throw medicine at them and then say, you know, come see me in a couple months. But the, the more difficult route, but the probably the more effective is actually give them a purpose, give them a community because I got to imagine you're coming back from Afghanistan where you're surrounded by like a team of, you know, like-minded people and then you get back and you know, you might not have that same community feeling. So is that kind of the idea here? Yeah, actually, absolutely. You hit it right on the head. I mean, because, you know, the military build teams, you know, just because of the teamwork and the nature of the, the job. And then you come back and you're back in the U.S. site where it's very individualistic, you know, so you don't have that. Where the climbing community is, you know, you build really tight bonds just because of the, the trust factor that you build when you're out climbing. So that's a, a great kind of welcoming community to build and bring that kind of sense of camaraderie and teamship. And, you know, that way you get together, you, you have your solid friends and it's just a really great program. Very, I mean, it's really kind of militaristic in that manner that, you know, you're, you've got your, your teams and your friends 
and then you being out in the outdoors where you know it's just you know peaceful and kind of relaxing and you're doing an activity that challenges you mentally and physically i mean we just think it's a a really great way of handling that and you know being able to build those friendships and you know do something active that's healthy for you compared to you know just sitting around doing nothing or yeah or taking some drugs to make you feel better so it's just uh you know like andy said a holistic approach to helping and reintegrating and you know just becoming part of a team again that's great that's great yeah i i uh i mean to like a super extreme less of an extent of that are you guys experiencing that at all after being two months in in on everest like experiencing kind of the loss of community or loss of purpose i guess or almost like you know after you accomplish a big goal there's a little dip of what do i do now <laughs> um no because I've, I've got a, a fairly good list of plans i want to yeah. do and you know honestly yeah there's a little reintegration stuff going on of you know because you know there it's a very simplistic life i mean you, you get up you eat your breakfast you, you do your climb for the day you come back you sit dinner you go to bed yeah. uh where here there's just so much going on and you know I, I went back to work this week i know andy goes back to work next week so you have you know i spend the whole day just catching up emails that's hilarious so, because yeah. you're almost saying that climbing Mount Everest is more relaxing than hanging around the house, which I totally understand. I, I get that for sure because there's so much to do all the time around the house. Yeah, yeah there it's is. Yeah, chaos at home. <laughs> so, yeah, but on Everest, you, you know, you don't have any of the other responsibilities. Your only responsibility is to make yourself feel well um, and, uh, yeah, continue to be patient and push the climb forward. Very, very simple. Yeah. <laughs> so how did, how did you guys train for this uh, in Iowa? So John and I took very different approaches to our training, um, which is interesting that we were both successful and equally successful, really. Um, I, I ran a lot. Um, I did the Chicago Marathon last fall to sort of create a base and uh, had, a, had a decent time. And... Um, then about a month, and I continued to run throughout the winter outside, in fact. There you go. That's um, how you do it right there. <laughs> yeah, run outside in Iowa's winter, yeah. <laughs> um, and then about a month out from the from us leaving for Everest, I did an ultramarathon, a 50-miler down in, in the trails of Kentucky. Nice. What, what, um, what ultramarathon was that? Uh, Land Between the Lakes. Okay. I think, I've heard that. I think so. Yeah, it's good. It's a really good one. It was a lot of fun. We had snow that day, and, and the trail's really sloppy. But uh, um, otherwise, it was a great, great marathon. Well run. Everything was great. A yeah. great ultra marathon, I should say. Um, so that's basically the the approach that I took. I, and I'd take, uh, I'd go down on the treadmill and throw my kid on my back. He's about thirty pounds. And just put the the incline all the way up. There and you just go. Put on some cartoons and let him watch cartoons for a few hours and. I'd get my workout in. That's amazing. So I really focused on legs and lungs. Yeah. I, I did. I, I had on my notes, incline treadmill, question mark. Uh, so, yeah, John, how'd you go about it then? Well, I, I'm i a, a rock climber. I'm a technical climber. Uh, that, that's my big passion. I, I did a marathon last fall, too, 
to make sure that I had the base for the, the cardio. And yeah, I ran outside a lot this winter also, but not to the, uh, the, the level that Andy was running outside. However, what I did was different than Andy is I went out to Colorado and then I went down to Mexico once too to, to climb mountains. Okay. So I was planning at least <sighs> once a month I was getting on real mountains, real rock, and climbing. What uh what mountains did um, you do out here? I'm I'm from I'm li- I live in Colorado. I forgot. I told Andy that oh. before we were talking to you. Okay. Uh, I have this goal of doing longs okay. north face in the winter. And the, the day I went out to attempt, it was, they had gotten snow like all that week. So on the weekend, it was just pristine. I ended up breaking trail from tree line all the way up to the boulder field. Nice. And then we discovered that all the snow on the north face was unconsolidated, oh. so completely unclimbable. Uh, yeah, I've, been, I've been defeated by longs too, and, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the cables route was the one I was trying. I mean, it's not technically a very difficult route, but, uh, you know, I just put it on my list, so I'm trying to get it knocked off. Yeah. And then Winter. Yeah. Yeah, that's, did, um, that's crazy. Dreamweaver on Mount Meeker okay. two weeks before I left for Everest. And yep. then down in Mexico, I did Pica de Orizabo, which is an 18,000-foot mountain. Went down there with a couple other guys. And yeah, we climbed that successfully. I was one of them. It was his first, you know, real mountain. Wow, so that's uh, pretty exciting. Wow, yeah, that's cool when you get to share the experience with with someone who's never done it before. Um, Absolutely, and and he was a veteran too, so I was really happy that you know he's kind of really getting into it and you know developing that that connection. Yeah, do you do uh do you go to climb Iowa often? Uh, at least once a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That place is awesome. Um, yeah. Every Wednesday. Uh, yeah. I actually helped, uh, design that place. Oh, really? Yeah. And then was a route setter there for, for a long time. That's great. My, my buddy wow. Calvin Johansson lives, uh, somewhere near there in Des Moines and he goes there all the time. Uh, and my, my wife and I used to live in Des Moines, so we would vis- try to visit okay. that about once a week too. So, <laughs> Yeah, I've got a solid group that I meet up on every Wednesday night. And uh, now that training for Everest is over, I'm going to start, you know, refocusing on training for climbing and get my uh, my grades back up a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So I guess I kind of want to hear a little bit about Summit Day. Um, I mean, unless you guys have any base camp stories, you definitely feel like you should share. It was pretty boring. Really? <laughs> Base camp was. Yeah, I mean, yeah, not much going on. How did you Just, handle being away from your family uh, during that time? So for me, uh, um, I bought a couple of Chinese SIM cards, and I had uh, 3G at Base camp, so I could just FaceTime every day. That's awesome. Yeah, it wasn't so bad. Yeah. Were they, were they concerned at all, or...? Or nervous, and maybe they didn't let you know until you got back. <laughs> I think John's family was much more nervous than mine. My wife had a contingency plan in case I didn't come home, but <laughs> that was uh, that was about it. She never expressed any any uh, any real concern during the climb. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think my wife was definitely more nervous about it. I mean, 
to the point that she even refused to watch the movie ever before I left. That's probably a wise um, decision. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, but, okay, so so Summit Day comes around, and I mean, I guess, can you guys kind of just tell the story of that or kind of try to put us in the shoes of how you were feeling at that point? Yeah, well, why don't I start? Because I, my, 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 my version starts a little bit before our actual Summit push. So the way that it works is you move from Camp 2 to Camp 3, and then you rest at Camp 3 for several hours. So you leave at Camp 2 in the morning, go to Camp 3, rest for several hours, and then leave that night for the summit. And uh, just below Camp 3, um, we came across our first dead body. Um, and I thought it was one of the famous ones. I didn't know where all the bodies were. There are hundreds of bodies on Everest, right? Um, the, the government, a couple of years ago, made a pretty big push to move most of the bodies out of sight. Um, they left a few insight, and uh, so I thought this was one of the famous ones. So I was taking a couple pictures um, of the body, and as I got closer, I noticed that, and this is about uh, a few hundred feet below Camp 3, uh, so we weren't even to Camp 3 yet, and uh, I noticed that his boots uh, were this year's model of the La Sportiva 8,000-meter peak boots, and I thought, oh, this is a this is a fresh body. <laughs> wow. And so I unclipped from and it, it was still clipped to the, the fixed line. Oh. Um, so you had to either if you're on one side you had to just sort of step over, or if you're on the other side of the fixed line, you had to unclip and, and go around. Um, so I unclipped and I ran past him. It really it really shook me um, to see this dead body. And we later found out that uh, it was an Australian gentleman um, who went up um went to mushroom rock wasn't feeling well he was using oxygen had a sherpa um doing everything the safe way got to mushroom rock wasn't feeling it was going down and initially they said that his brain swelled up and he just died but later reports said that he uh his heart failed and he just just you know just fell That's over so crazy just a few hours before we passed them. Wow. So this is a fresh body, and uh, and it it, uh, it shook me. It shook me a little bit. Um, I thought, how is my body going to react when I go even higher? I mean, and the the answer to that isn't clear until it happens. So either it's it's a, it's a dichotomy, right? So either one thing happens or another. You either like have a problem and die, or you don't have a problem and live. And you don't know the answer to that question until it comes to that impact. Like you either die or you don't, um, and you have no warning beforehand. Um, so that that kind of shook me, and it, it thought, is this really worth the risk? And all these other things. Um, and finally, I, I I got it in my mind that I needed to be positive and, and think about uh, the other people that it's already summited in our group, the rushing uh, cohort, and um, finally got back on positive. And, and, and pushed hard on summit days. So, um, was it just like you had to put that out of your mind completely? You know, you just had it, to try to forget about it. It had to be gone. Yeah. <laughs> it had to be completely gone. Yeah, I couldn't. It was, it was after we saw the dead body. It was very difficult to keep on track and keep focused on what I needed to do to be successful. If that makes sense. To be successful and, and after, safe, even almost. If you're distracted at all, I gotta imagine that's kind of a, to your own detriment. That's yeah. That's that's exactly right. So once we got to camp, the most important things were to drink and eat. 
if you can and that high it's very difficult to drink and eat <laughs> yeah so it takes a lot of energy just to focus on doing those two things um so i really had to get past the mental side of things before i could start focusing on the physical side um at all so for me summit day and getting past uh the sort of this this idea of all the risks and how is my body going to react the the mental side was actually more difficult to surmount than the physical side. John and I performed physically very, very well on uh, on Summit Day. Um, so that so that's the the preface to to the Summit climb. And I'll let John take over the sort of the description of our of our push to the summit. Yeah. So you know, like Andy said, we both uh, were able to eat and drink up at Camp Three, which I think really benefited us as a team. And then, you know, we had a, a small team. There were just six of us, you know, three climbers and then uh, three Sherpas. And so we were able to move very efficiently, and we actually passed several teams on the, on the summit day, you know, just be moving quickly. And for me, summit day was the most fun day of the whole trip because <laughs> you actually get into technical rock climbing yeah, yeah. up there. So for me as a technical climber, you know, having the cramp on, on the rocks and the snow – that was the fun. I mean, I, you know, holding out, I'm climbing along, you know, imagining doing this without the fixed rope, actually. Going, wow. How would I do this? You know, what's the route? What's the pattern? And so it, it was, it was fun. And I think that really motivated me and helped me on, on summit day. How much, you know, having how, the how hard, of it. yeah. How hard is it to do crampons on the rocks? Depending on where it was, I mean, a lot of Everest on the upper slopes is actually downward sloping kind of slabs. Okay. Uh, where the edges are all pointed on the downside, so crampons don't smear at all. So that, that was a little difficult, and the rock quality itself on Everest is is what I'd call poor. I mean, it's a little chossy. Um, but yeah, you just. I mean, you're kind of used to it, or I'm used to it, you know, being a, a mixed rock climber, so I could edge and go along pretty well. Um, Were you used to that? Yeah, it, yeah no problem. Okay. No problem. The last the last mountain I was on was also mixed. I climbed the Matterhorn. Okay. Um, okay. And it was mixed climbing as well. Um, so for us, too, for John and I, the technical side of Summit Day was a lot of fun. The third partner in our group was a French lady um, and she, uh, she's actually the first woman in, uh, European woman to summit Everest three times, but she's not a technical rock climber. So John and I were, even though she'd been there twice before and she was super strong, she went from ABC to, the, uh, to camp two directly, just skipped the North Coal altogether. Um, and so she was super strong, but, uh, her technical rock climbing skills weren't as good. So she was much slower or a little bit slower on the technical parts. Um, like moving on the ladder and these sort of things and wanted to, uh, uh, and she actually took a couple of falls onto the fixed oh, line wow. as well. Um, whereas John and I were just cruising through because of our, our, our mix of uh, mountaineering and technical, technical skills together. Nice. Yeah. So after, you know, after you experience that, um, does it become less technical when you get near the top is there just like one section of technical and then it kind of, no. <laughs> no, no, there are several sections of technical. They call them the steps of oh, the yeah, most technical okay. parts. 
yeah, the three steps. In the second step, they actually have ladders um, bolted to the, well, one of them is free floating, but the other two are bolted to the wall. And believe it or not, those ladders um, are actually fairly difficult to navigate. They're not, it's not like like climbing onto your roof to clean your gutters. Um, I can't imagine. Because the, <laughs> the, long, the longest ladder is on this rock face, and the ladder stops about a meter and a half um, before the actual top of, before you actually top out. <laughs> so you have this blank face of, of rock um, that you have to sort of navigate, which going up was okay, but going down was a little bit shaky. You know, when you get uh, way above your last piece of pro when you're rock climbing, and you get that feeling like, oh, this is a little bit dicey. Um, that's the feeling that I got going down trying to get onto the ladder from that, that little bit. Um, but otherwise never, never felt out of control at all. Okay. Yeah. And John didn't have any problem at all. He was super comfortable the whole time. He just like <laughs> mountain goaded up the mountain. <laughs> yeah. And that, and for the French lady, um, was so uncomfortable that she had to go and repel for that, um, by an old fixed line, which is a bit of a, 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 a dicey move in itself to trust an old line up there because of the sun and, and the weather and everything that really deteriorates the ropes, but she felt much safer doing it that way. So, yeah. Um, and you yeah. guys are in the dark pretty much the whole way out. Yeah. We beat the sunrise by about 30 minutes to be okay. honest. I mean, we're moving really efficiently. We hadn't really planned to, we had kind of timed our departure from camp three to coincide, you know, shortly after sunrise, but we ended up just, you know, being a, very efficient as a team and then just cranking it out. I mean, everyone was feeling great, no no issues, and we ended up with a perfect weather window for Summit Day. I mean, like, no wind, which is very, very unlikely. But, yeah, we, we ended up getting it, so we were able to move. It was almost, almost hot, I want to say. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think it was still, you know, below negative 20, but – you know, to the the down suit and the exertion. I know I had my down suit like unzipped and the hood off because of the the heat I was generating and the the temperature outside. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we beat the sunrise by by 30 minutes. Which you know, you look at some of our summit photos and they're they're dark and that's because you know we were taking our pictures in the dark. But it did allow us to uh, see the sun come up. I mean, we spent about. 45 minutes on the summit, I think. Wow. Uh, Andy probably knows the exact time better than I do. And, uh, you know, I got some summit photos, and I put the camera away and just kind of, instead of trying to capture the moment, I actually experienced the moment and watched the sun rise and light up the Himalayan mountains and the peaks and the valleys and everything. It was, it was pretty spectacular. I think I'm going to remember that one for a very, very long time. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I, I words probably can't even express uh, what that was like. I mean, a sunrise from the top of Mount Everest is wow. That's amazing, man. Uh, so were you guys, we got, were you guys able, like, I guess you said you, you put everything away with intention of just like feeling the moment. Um, were you able to stay present that whole time or were you already kind of worrying about making it down safely? Like, did that come into your mind at all or, or were you just trying to enjoy it? Um, no, not where I was, well, I was enjoying the sunrise. It didn't really come into mind at all. Um, but once it started getting, you know, the sun was up and it was getting light, it was like, yep, it, it, it's time to move on down now. Um, and 
I don't think we really had anybody in the the group argue to stay longer. So yeah, it was starting to yeah. get really crowded up there at that time as well. I mean, there were a lot of people who had the same sort of planned it to make it up right after sunrise, the same as we did. Um, so the summit was actually pretty crowded by the time we left. How big is the top actually? Like, I guess you don't probably don't know exact numbers, but if you just had to estimate. I think it'll accommodate 20 people tight. Okay. Um, it's pretty small. It's yeah. really small. It's like a small room. Yeah, it's not a very big area. And it's yeah, pretty, it's, it's I, relatively I like steep very, on all sides. Yep. Yeah, the, the, the flat, very summit sort of part is maybe the size of a folding table, I would say. And then you have the slopes that kind of drop away around it that, wow. you know, people could stand on too. Wow. That's it's, it's not very big at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you guys start coming down and any, anything exciting during the, during the descent or, or how long did it take you guys to get back to, to a camp? Um, the, 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 our, our descent to ABC, we went all the way back down to ABC at 21,000. Um, and it was decidedly uneventful, okay. which was fantastic. Yeah. Um, didn't really have to wait for many people. We had the mountain to ourselves going down for the most part. Just at the very top, we had to wait for a couple people, but not much. Um, the only thing that was different on the way down from compared to the way up is that we could see the other dead bodies that we missed on the way up because it was dark <laughs> yeah um that was the only thing and it, well, at that point we felt very comfortable we felt strong um so it didn't really didn't really have as as big of an adverse effect um at, at that point so um how long did it take we it took us uh we left at 9 40 p.m for from camp three to the summit we summited at 4 15 so 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4. So six hours, six and a half hours uh, or so to the summit. And then it took about 10 hours to get down, I guess. Nine and a half. Yep. Nine and a half all the way back down to ABC. Okay. Well, and we then, were stopping at the camps, too, and taking breaks yeah, on the way just down. just taking our time. You know, half yeah. hour to an hour. Gotcha. Um, but, yeah, we moved really efficiently down, too, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> When you yeah. finally go to sleep, how long do you sleep for? Oh, you know, you're sleeping at, at a height, an elevation, even though you're still on Everest, it's still an elevation higher than Denali Yeah. Um, at ABC. So sleep was okay, but it was, still wasn't, like, phenomenal. Okay. Even then. Okay. Yeah, for me anyway. I don't know. But what do you, how much did you sleep, John? No, I got a good probably eight hours or so that that was probably one of the better nights of sleep when there at abc but you know then we got up the next day and we hiked the next 11 miles all the way down to base camp so <laughs> those were a c couple big days for us there you know it was like three days it was really pretty strenuous and you know we actually ended up being a little sore after that those events yeah that's what i was going to uh, ask are you waking up like robotic almost like can't move your body i was sore and that was surprising i my legs haven't been sore in a very long time because i use them so much but uh they were sore after that yeah wow what yeah, uh for sure what did you guys do to celebrate when you got down there there's a beer masa called lhasa beer 
And we may or may not have had a few of those. Yeah, lots of lots of beer. <laughs> we had lots of lots of beer. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, cool. So, you know, moving forward, I guess um, you've been back for not even two weeks. Uh, how how is this experience going to affect your lives as you go forward? Go ahead, John. Um, well, I, I think we've, you know, it, it's, I'm not sure it's really completely sunk into what I have achieved. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I guess we, we got more calls for interviews than I think I've ever had in my, my past life. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, it's really just, well, that's, that's a great question. Well, oh, I know. Uh, what's your thoughts on that one? Yeah, so for me, I hope that uh, our climb is able to inspire other people, um, and especially my children. I want them to, to know that um, just because they're from a, a flat state doesn't mean that they can't do whatever they want. You know, it's just, just because they're from a certain place um, that really the, the sky's the limit, literally the sky's the limit. Um, and same with my students. I hope that they are they're able to ask questions, and it'll motivate them to to do things that they may have otherwise thought uh, not possible. Um, so that's that's how I, I hope that it changes my life. I hope that I'm able to impact other people in a more positive way than I would have if I wouldn't have achieved uh, achieved the summit. Yeah. So. If if your students ever are like, oh, I couldn't get this paper in, you're just like. Look at them and just like, hey man, I climbed Everest. Come on. <laughs> Summit day was hard. And it was much harder than this. Suck it up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, that's awesome. So, all right, I guess the last kind of wrap up question here I have to ask um, because you guys are from Iowa. What, I mean, I just hear, like, even my friend this week who works in Chicago is like, I work with a bunch of Iowans. And they won't stop talking about Iowa, like, and how awesome it is. And my wife's guilty of it, too. And I'm guilty of it, too. So what makes Iowa such a great place to live? Unequivocally, the people. The people in Iowa are the hardest working, nicest people um, that I've ever, out of any place I've ever lived. I've lived a lot of places. I lived in Europe. I lived in China for over four years. Um, and I've, I've lived in Colorado, even. But I, I can tell you um, that the people that I meet in Iowa, um, there's there's something to them. The, this idea of the Protestant work ethic that's uh, um, historically driven um, the people of Iowa, there's 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 really something to that. So I think it's the people. The people are what make Iowa great. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I would agree with that one. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thank you guys. You, you're an inspiration to. You know anybody who hears this story, but especially uh, especially fellow Iowans. So so thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Go Iowa. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah. So good luck with everything moving forward, and uh, you know I hope you hope you get all the seven summits, and you know I'm sure you guys are in for big things. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> well, have a good have a good one, John. All right. Thank you. All right. See ya. All right. All right. Thanks again to John and Andy for chatting with us today. And uh, yeah, man, super inspiring story. When Andy was mentioning how he hopes this affects his kids, 
that really connects with me. So anytime I'm pursuing a goal or actively trying to accomplish something, I do keep that in mind. My kids are going to see the hard work that I put into accomplishing this goal and then ultimately see the success and the benefits that I receive from achieving it. But most importantly, they're seeing all the day after day after day of work that I'm putting in to accomplish this. And I think that's really important for for anybody to understand is that a goal isn't out of reach. It is accomplishable. I don't know if that's a word. Andy would know he's a professor, but I don't know. So we'll say it. A goal is accomplishable, but it is going to require sometimes a massive amount of hard work and a massive amount of focus. And once you realize that, you pretty much can go after whatever whatever you're passionate about, whatever inspires you. You guys can do it, but you got to understand you got to be focused and you got to put in the work. All right, so that's it for this week. Uh, check out the rest of our episodes, likeabigfoot.com, uh, or just type in like a Bigfoot to iTunes or or wherever you're listening to this. Um, you can see our archives. We have a lot of great guests, um, and I'm just excited that Andy and John um, were able to talk to me today and let me nerd out a little bit about Everest. <laughs> so, so yeah, great experience for me. Um, next week, we will be coming back at you guys with Susan Knoll. She's going to be a returning guest. She's a She's my cousin, <laughs> the easiest guest to get. So these two guys were cousins. My cousins, I feel like, have accomplished some great things. Uh, and so I'm going to have her back on. She's a physical therapist, uh, a runner. She just finished a stage race in Mexico that that we talk about. And we also kind of share, and by share, I mean she educates me on some of the more common injuries that you can get while running and how to treat and how to deal with those injuries. So check back, really interesting conversation. She dropped some knowledge and I definitely learned a lot. All right, we'll get back to you then. Uh, Have a good week, guys. Go get them.